Mindfulness Mode 471. So mindfulness is a state of reconnecting back to our essence. And I can see how amazing and how valuable that can be. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode, everybody. So glad to have you here. And today I have a guest on that, well, you'll see, I was pretty excited. I'm excited about how much she's done in this whole field of mindfulness and meditation. Oh, first, before I tell you a little bit about her and move on, I'm going to tell you about a place I love to get website addresses. It's called hover.com. You can get a discount there by using this affiliate code just go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash hover h-o-v-e-r now today's guest i think you're going to enjoy the episode sit back relax and enjoy my interview with rajri patel Guess what, Mindful Tribe? We have a person with us, a wonderful woman. Get this. She's taught hundreds of thousands of people in more than 35 countries the power of meditation, mindfulness, and breath work. Like, that's just astounding. I have Rashri Patel with me. Rashri, this is such an honor. Uh, Are you in mindfulness mode today? I am in mindfulness mode today, especially we're talking and I have all this crazy construction going on outside. So I really need to be present and with you and all the listeners out there. Well, I am very excited to have you with us. And I just want to share with Mindful Tribe, you are a meditation expert, an international self-awareness coach. You're a teacher, a speaker, and you have just done so much in this world to share these techniques. And many of them are anxious, ancient techniques. You have a mindfulness toolbox and you help people access their lost creativity leading to personal fulfillment. And you've guided government leaders and families and Oscar-winning filmmakers and Fortune 500 executives, all to help them understand how to let go of stress and be more fulfilled. Like, this must be so rewarding. And now you've got a brand new book called The Power of vital force. And we'll talk about what vital force is. And of course, Mindful Tribe, you can check out the website at thepowerofvitalforce.com. So that's super easy to check out. But let's let's get started. What does mindfulness mean to you, Rashri? So for me, it's three simple words, present, acceptance, and allowing. Presence, acceptance, and the last one? Allowing. Allowing. Presence, acceptance, and allowing. Okay, tell us about that. You know, today we use it as a noun often, and it's also an adjective. And we often try to turn it into a verb, meaning action. But the way I see it is mindfulness is our state of mind, our being. It's who we are. I mean, kids, babies, they're born. They're very aware, very present. They're also very allowing. There's no judgment going on in the intellect, right, wrong, should be, should not be. I like it. I don't like it. And allowing refers to whatever's happening, letting it be. There isn't this hierarchy. There isn't this separation. There isn't this, this should be or shouldn't. It's just how we go. 
It's who we are in our essence, mindful. And all we're doing through some tools and techniques is going back to ourselves. We're not creating something foreign to us. That's for me the key. But in your book, you talk about mindfulness and you're not like 100% excited about this new trend toward mindfulness. And, you know, I found that very interesting, the chapter you talked about, about mindfulness. What's, what's going on here? So, again, I'm using the word mindfulness the way we use it in the West, as a noun, as a name of a technique rather than as a state of being. And to go back a little bit in history, mindfulness came into the West perhaps 50, 60 years ago. A group of individuals went to the Far East, went to a monastery with Buddhist monks and so on, and studied, stayed there two, three months, and went through the practice of becoming mindful, more mindful, if you want. And that practice, even in those monasteries, even in Buddhism, was not a single idea of labeling, monitoring, or noticing our thoughts, or our actions, or our emotions. Actually, those activities, that idea of labeling or monitoring, is a mental action, a mental activity. And if we look at Buddhism, where the mindfulness comes from, it's not a single idea of monitoring. It's an entire system, right? With precept, with chanting, with mantras. It's got sound. It's got silence. There's so much to the entire system. And what happened is 50, 60 years ago, just that single piece I think it's very valuable. It builds frontal cortex, gray matter, rational decision-making. But today, the way we are hooked into technology, we're constantly you know, hooked into email and our cell phones and chat and WhatsApp and so on. What happens is that isn't the piece that needs to relax because you know, the more calm the mind is, the less mental activity, the less thoughts, judgments, analysis, yada, yada, yada in the mind, the more mindful, aware, present, allowing, accepting we are. And so from that perspective, I'm saying mindfulness, the way the West has adopted it, isn't working. Actually, I find hundreds of students coming to me saying, I've been trying it. I just can't do it. You know, I can't stay with my mind and focus or awareness for more than three or four seconds and my mind drifts away. And so it's from this place I'm saying there's an easier way to become mindful. Well, that's um, really interesting that you say that. And you've worked with so many people. I love how in your book, you tell stories about yourself and stories about your life at the beginning. And you tell a story about your childhood in India, where you objected to the marriage of your aunt. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So in India, especially then, you know, yeah. 50 years ago, there was a real system around dowry particularly from the woman's side to the man's side. And what happens is as they marry and they take their vows, there are these five particular vows that get taken. The woman's side of the family gives as a gift something to the man's side of the family. And usually these things I think are pre-agreed to. Of course, I was a child hanging over 
my balcony watching the wedding take place, the ceremony on the bottom, you know, on the ground floor. Right. And suddenly I noticed around the second or third vow, there was this glitch. And basically what happened is the the uncle, uh, the man's side of the family, up-leveled the demands. You know, whatever they had agreed to was not enough or they decided to change their mind and they started asking for more. And I could overhear the conversation. Imagine, you know, in that moment, it puts everybody in this particular bind and right. embarrassment and so on and so forth. But I overheard it. So I leaned down into the balcony and I start screaming at, at the people down below saying, listen, old lady, meaning the mother of the groom, you take your son and go home. You know, you should be paying us. My aunt is not for sale. I How old were you at this time? Exclaimed. I was probably about six or or seven years old. I saw the injustice of it all in a certain way. I guess maybe that's what made me go into law in the first place. Who knows? Uh, And my uncle came and he had to drag me away. You know, he grabbed me by my waist and said, no, 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 no. And, And I was pulled away. And I guess they resolved it somehow. And did the marriage go ahead? Yes, it did. <laughs> yes, it did go ahead. And I, I don't know if they gave more or less or stuck to their original agreements, but it's culture, right? It's yeah. our hard wiring and it, it shows itself in, in the strangest of moments. And really that's where the book picks up the conversation. I'm talking about my identity. You know, it started as, again, these sort of conversations around, well, just because I'm a woman, does that mean I'm less than something? Or coming into America and questioning my identity, well, what culture am I more? Who am I more Indian? Uh, Am I more Western? Am I a combination? Later on, I, I went on to become a lawyer and I was a prosecutor. Never would I have imagined it, but there I was. Somehow I I went there. And how and long did you do that work? How long would... did you work as a prosecutor, Rashri? I was there about six years. Oh, quite a while. Doing that. Yeah. And was that fulfilling work for you? You know, I loved the work. I don't know if I thought of it as fulfilling because that's a very different word, but I loved it. I loved being in the courtroom. What was loving was that it was people engaging, whether it was my police officers, detective, the judge, the defense attorneys, the witnesses. There was a lot of exchange of human you know, connection. And I think that is what I was loving, though I hadn't realized it, you know, at the time. And I always pinched. There was always some degree of looking at the bigger picture, like I would see the crime, of course. And of course, people do need to be responsible for what they do. But then if you just scratch the surface a little and you look behind the scene, you start to wonder, you know, how much a culprit is also a victim somewhere in their life. You know, what are the challenges that they've gone through in their life that that puts them to do such an egregious or harmful or hurtful act? And for me, it was a reflection of myself in a sense that I knew when I'm stressed, when I'm tired, when I don't feel a sense of support, what happens is my behavior, maybe my words, maybe my tone, maybe my impatient becomes worse. And if that stress continued without relief, Who knows what I would do? And so I really started to see that the human condition is really very tied to our inner landscape, how well we deal with our emotions, our thoughts, and the circumstances around us. And nobody trains us to deal with that. No, it's true. 
It's true. And how did you, you transition know? from being a prosecutor to working in this whole field of consciousness and mindfulness? So that's another one of those stories where I feel like the universe had a hand in it. I had just moved from New York to Los Angeles. My whole family was in New York. I got transferred to, uh, to LA. I was excited about the weather and all of that, but I was alone. I didn't know anybody. And I happened to see a sign that said Pandit Ravi Shankar. At the time, there was a very famous sitar player, perhaps you've heard of him in India, right. who was about 70 years old. And I just thought it's a music concert. So sure. I went expecting a music concert, socializing, meeting up with people, so on and so forth. And when I got there, I realized, well, in fact, it's a spiritual master from India, in a sense, a bodhisattva, you know, one who is present and aware and, and operating in the present moment with compassion and service. And so I was curious. I stayed and I noticed nine hours later, it had transformed how I looked out of my eyes. It was like I was looking through a new set of glasses. I was present. The extra noise in my head had stopped. How do I look? Did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? What does someone say? It didn't work the last time. You know, all that yada yada, the noise that goes on constantly, the self-talk is what I call it, had gone so low that I was just present. I could just be allowing and I could be accepting while being very dynamic and, and you know, active with whatever I had to do. And so that started my journey towards human potential and self-acceptance. And did you decide there and then that you wanted to transition and work in this field? No, I think then and there I decided I was just greedy, probably like any <laughs> other person in the moment who's just, you know, focused on achieving. I was getting things done in quarter the time. I was sleeping better. I was somehow connecting with people and I noticed that I wasn't carrying static around in my head around, oh, why did they do that? Why didn't they do that? Constantly judging. And so because of wanting more for my life, I went to a silence retreat. And in that silence retreat, I had an experience, a very clear experience of saying, wow, what's creating results in my world outside isn't about moving the pieces around outside, but rather moving what's happening to me on the inside. You know, it's kind of like if you're playing chess, you move those pieces, but it's not the pieces that are creating success. It's the player of the pieces, you know? Yes. And yes. How long was the retreat? I, How long was the retreat? Um, I, it just was a very short retreat. You know, they have anywhere from um, three and a half days two and a half days to four days. And I think mine was a little bit longer, but in the first day and a half, I realized, wow, I can change what happens to me, how I perceive, how I'm present. I can't change everything and every situation and every person outside. And that started the journey to, I want to look into this. And a year or something later, I left law and I went into, you know, really about natural law, awareness, consciousness, and, and more about inner freedom, you know, whereas before it was about locking people up in a sense. Yeah, yeah, right. Rajri, I want to ask you, why did you call your book Vital Force, The Power of Vital Force? It's the one thing 
that is at the root of every single thing we do. So if I can just define vital force Please do. as movement, as energy, it's the one thing that creates physical movement, mental movement, emotional movement, spiritual movement. It is energy itself. It's an innate force of intelligence and dynamism that we're surrounded in. We just have never connected to it. And the truth is we do a lot, a lot to uplevel our our life, to be mindful, uh, you know, talking about mindfulness for the moment. You can't be mindful if you're tired. It doesn't matter what tools you have. It doesn't matter what techniques you have. If your battery is low, you're discharged, your hard drive won't function. Rajri, I want to ask you, would you share with us a tool to dial down the chatter of people's minds because that's one of the big reasons that we go for mindfulness because our our minds are just going crazy and racing what tool can you share with us i can tell you the simplest tool it's right under our nose and that's our breath as simple as it sounds we've heard it a hundred times you know take a breath take a breath so something that that listeners may not know is when we breathe in It's true we take in oxygen and it nourishes our cells and our body and up-levels our immune and health, physical health. What we don't realize is that the in-breath also brings in what we're calling this subtle fragrance, chi or prana or vital force in through the breath and it up-levels our mental and emotional state also. So number one, in-breath energizes us. And our out-breath helps us to release, to detox, if you will, physical toxins, CO2, lactic acid. It brings our pH into balance, but it also empties the mind. It dials down the chatter of the mind. So I tell people, breathe three times, discerning moments in a day, consciously. First thing in the morning, just before lunch, and at bedtime. And I'll I'll really briefly explain why. First thing in the morning, because we've been sleeping, there's been less lung capacity. Just roll over on your back or sit up and do 10 long breaths. It does three amazing things. Number one, it brings in energy. So you feel like bouncing out of bed rather than dragging yourself out of bed. And when you bounce out of bed, your mind is more present, more positive. Number two, it shuts off the processing that took place in the middle of the night. I I know that a lot of people say, I slept, but I feel like I was thinking all night. Or I slept, but I feel like I'm more tired when I'm awake than when I went to sleep. Or I didn't sleep at all because I was tossing and turning. Why? Because our emotional brain, our limbic brain, which stops us from being mindful, was activated. As we entered sleep, we were processing something and we opened up a lot of files. So first thing in the morning, if we do that, we close the incomplete sleep cycle, we energize ourselves, and we release any toxins that's sitting in our system. The lungs get emptied out and we get more vibrant. Yeah, I totally. Oh, I just want to ask you this question. I know that you share ancient Uh secrets, ancient secrets to fuel your purpose and performance. What are some of those ancient secrets? So other ancient secrets is to move the center of our identity. We're very involved in identifying ourselves with our roles, our responsibilities, our achievements, 
our gender, our nationality. But there's another piece to our identity, and that's our consciousness, meaning at the core, we're energy, we're light, we're intelligence. Babies are born that way. We don't have to do anything to feel energetic, vibrant, alive, and be present. That's who we are. The only problem is it's gotten covered over with all the difficult events in life. And so Vedanta, the ancient wisdom of India, what it says is every day, spend a moment reconnecting back to your essence. And this is when I do it. Here's another tool and a tip, which is when I finish brushing my teeth, you know, when you're just, you've splashed the last bit of water on your face and I'm wiping my face, I pause for maybe 30 seconds. I look in the mirror. I look at my eyes, not the features or the face, but just look to my eyes. And I have a very clear sense after maybe 10, 15 seconds that, oh, I'm not the eyes. I'm actually looking through the eyes. That is the state of awareness, recognition that you're beyond your body, that you're a state of attention and electricity and awareness. So I do that every morning and every night. When I brush my teeth at night, I finish, I look in the mirror. However my day has been, it has been. But here I am looking through the eyes. Tomorrow morning is a new day. So that connection to core essence. It's called Advaitya. I don't know if you've ever heard that word. It's a system of India which says at the core, there's only oneness, consciousness, the, the, the sort of the sub-quantum space and field is dynamism and intelligence. There we are all connected. And on the surface, we see duplicity differences. And so we celebrate the differences while we connect to the oneness. And that happens when we recognize that we are that. I love what you just said. Celebrate the differences while we connect to the oneness. Like that's really powerful. I want to ask you, Rajri, when did you decide to write your book and how long did it take you? I mean, what kind of mindfulness did it take to put this together? So... I decided to write the book February of 2018. I have been getting requests, you know, over the last 35 years by I don't know how many people. I resisted it. That's where I was really unmindful. It turns out English is my third language. I always got sort of my lowest grade in English because by the time I came here, I was already 10. I didn't speak the language. I didn't read or write the language, meaning English. And so I was dropped two grades. I went from eighth grade to sixth grade. And that's always left some little unconscious impression, you know, uh, a self-judgment around it. And even in law school, the writing part got the lowest grade and everything else was fine. And so there was this noise that I was not conscious of. And the moment I leaped into the decision of writing the book, that you know, resistance reared its ugly head and anything imaginable would happen to me to avoid sitting down to write. And then suddenly I became aware, wow, my mind is operating in resistance. Um, we operate in two mindsets. That's what Vedanta talks about. And we can talk about that a little later. But I realized I'm in resistance. And the more resistance I'm in, the more resistance I'm inviting into my life from the universe. And so when that happened, 
I could suddenly sit down, start recording. I came up with another way of doing it. I recorded it. I sent it out. It would get transcribed. I would discuss it and turn it into a chapter. And we really finished it really between February to September. On 28th of September, I turned in the manuscript. And it was amazing because eight months which is far less than what most authors take, certainly new authors and first-time authors like myself. And when we do become aware of how we're operating, where our mind is stuck, we excel. You know, that's when change happens in our life and the universe gets behind us. I really love that. I want to talk more about that feeling of resistance because I think there are so many of our listeners out there that would identify with this, you know, like there's just something not quite gelling in my life, something not quite right. What do we do when we notice that we're in a state of resistance? So the simplest thing is first to acknowledge it. I am in resistance, not judge it, but I'm in resistance and I don't know why but I am. Okay, that's enough. Just that simple thing brings us back to our simplicity and our innocence. And then the second thing I say is, if we notice when our energy is low, when our vitality is low, we look at the glass half empty, meaning resistance. And when our vital force, when we feel really rested, when our energy is high, We see the glass not only half full with water, but maybe full, half with air and half with water. We have a different perspective on things, you know? So connecting these two dots, that energy, vital force, and our perception, our dynamism, our willingness to risk are directly connected. And there's a virtuous cycle as well as a vicious cycle. Low energy means negative complaining mind. Very little action, very little risk. High energy means positive optimism, a lot of action and willingness to risk after doing careful due diligence. So we are what we want to be, the higher the energy. Right. Rajri, I want to ask you, what's some of the feedback you've gotten from your book? So, I mean, I haven't, you know, publication date is October 1st but I circulated it internally to a couple hundred people just to get their thoughts and input and see what they do. And they practice the tools and the techniques that are in the book, the self-awareness exercises. Like in the very beginning of the book, I ask the reader to do a self-talk exercise where they have to list the 10 things that they find themselves thinking about, maybe at night or talking about or ruminating you know, on. And as they do that, they start to see what percentage of their day goes into positivity, what percent in negativity, mindfulness increases, and therefore change happens. So one of the most amazing response across anybody who's done it, you know, whether it's someone who is in mindfulness, someone who's, quote, walking the journey of, of looking inward, or a reluctant person who just says, I need to sleep better, is oh my God, these simple tools, as soon as I do them, they make a shift. Nobody knows I'm doing it. And yet I see that my mind calms down. I recenter myself. I ground myself and I have a new perspective for the moment and gives me the resilience to continue. So it's the wisdom with the tools that makes the difference in my mind. 
Yeah, for sure. We do need tools that we can implement. Rajri, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you about the topic of bullying. Were you ever bullied? Do you have a, a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? I think, you know, I didn't realize it then that I was bullied, but in a sense it was. So if you go back to 1971, when I came from India, first of all, you know, you're in a foreign culture, mindset, environment, you don't speak the language. So I myself would have felt out of sorts. You know, a a lot of bullying is where we don't feel at ease or at comfort at some level internally. And then a group of people outside make us feel even worse about it, right? Somehow or some way. Right. So I was new to, to the U.S. in New York of all places from a small town. And no one really knew what it meant when I said, I'm from India, I'm from, I'm Indian, they would Mm -hmm. naturally equate it to the American red Indian, you know, in Columbus and America. Yes. Yeah, sure. And so what would happen is they would like walk around teasing me, you know, making the sound like that. And when I said it was my birthday, there was this not natural assumption that, oh, We went and slaughtered a buffalo and I lived in a teepee. The world wasn't aware. We didn't have the the communication technology that we have today, of course. Right, of course. And so I couldn't defend myself. I couldn't express myself at the time. And at the same time, I felt this, you know, place of discord and, and disharmony. And it went on until I could vocalize myself. You know, I, I six months later, I spoke the language and then I could go and either stand up for myself or walk away from it. And I think that's where mindfulness would have been of so much value to be aware, to say, you know, what's going on there has nothing to do with me. And to use some of the tools, when I felt lowest, then I noticed that what others had to say about me impacted me the most. And when I felt more centered and when I felt more, you know, strong internally, empowered, then I would sort of laugh at them and say, you're so ignorant. How can you not know what India is? It could, I could turn it around, you know? Right. So mindfulness is a state of reconnecting back to our essence. And I can see how amazing and how valuable that can be. At, at any point. And I know my niece and nephew use it today, you know, the breath to reconnect when they're in the middle of exams in, in high schools or when they're dealing with a situation where they feel out of peer, you know, with the group that they're hanging out with and, and standing up to say no, whether it's to drugs or to smoking or, or to alcohol when they need to. Right. That's, that's great. I, I love your insight. I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Uh, so just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Uh, so that would be my teacher, guide and guru, uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. Okay. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? I used to be very emotional, very impatient, actually. And what I've noticed is through the tools, before I go off the Richter scale or before it expresses itself, I can regulate down just through the breath, not suppress. There's a big difference. Regulate down, meaning as if it never happened, release it through the breath. So for me, it's made me a patient, more kinder person. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Tell us how breathing 
is part of your mindfulness practice. You've talked about breathing already, but let's sum it up. So that's something I do every day consciously, you know, as I said, first thing in the morning, in the afternoon and at bedtime. But when I'm surrounded by negativity or if I'm going into a stressful environment, a meeting or a situation, instead of putting my attention on how will it be? What do they think? Is this good? Is this not good? I let my mind do whatever it's doing. I fall back on my breath, not to focus. This is the key. I just use it as an exercise. I make it longer or shorter, and that naturally changes the state of my mind, my thoughts, my emotions. I love that. That's that's very powerful. Your book is The Power of Vital Force, and you know you can go right there to the website, thepowerofvitalforce.com. Are there any other books you would recommend for us to read? Yeah, it, it may not sound like this is the book, but one book I really recommend to people is The Little Prince. Um, do you know, are you familiar with that book? Yes, um, I am. Yes, I am. I, I know it doesn't sound like it has anything to do with mindfulness, but the simplest tools of how to be mindful are in there, whether it's to remind ourselves of our playful nature or to remind ourselves to just smile and laugh to remind ourselves that, you know, the sky will not fall down. So I really recommend this book, The Little Prince. It has more nuggets than anyone could imagine. Yeah. And and it's such a quick read. It's such a little gem. And I don't think anybody's ever recommended it on my show before. So thank you for that, Rashri. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And and my last question is, uh, can you share an app which can help people to be more mindful? Oh, there's an app called the Art of Living Journey app. It's, okay. it's literally the Art of Living Journey app. And there's a lot of pain points that I've taught short online courses. Like there's one on sleep, one on stress, one on dealing with anger management. There goes the point that I made earlier, you know, and they're short videos with tools and tips. There's a little understanding of why that happens. And here's a tool. And so there's anywhere between five to seven videos. So I would really strongly encourage people to go there. Um, and the other thing I would say is if you order the book, The Power of Vital Force, and go on that website, register, you'll get an 11-session online course that I have recorded with, again, lots of tools and tips and techniques that bring us to be mindful without needing, you know, the right seat and the right place. You can do it while you're in motion and nobody knows you're using it or doing it to recenter, regroup. Oh, so wait, if you go to the website, thepowerofvitalforce.com, you'll not only get the book, if you order it, you'll get an 11 session online course for free included with the book. Is that what I'm to understand? Yes, yes. It's a a $525 value. It includes at the end, a live webinar for those who want to join. And all you have to do is just, you know, order the book. It gives you tools and tips and then go and register your receipt on my site, The Power of Vital Force. And after October 1st, you'll start to receive an email and once a week, new tool, new tip. There's just tremendous amount in there. And do you get a hard copy of the book or a digital copy? It doesn't matter. Oh, you can whatever get whichever they, you want. Okay. Yeah. Audio, digital, or hard copy, whatever they want. Oh, wow. That's very generous yeah. of you to include that. Wow. Vital Force. 
well, you know, we can be a vital force in this world and we should be, but sometimes we just get a little discouraged trying to figure out where that where that instruction booklet is that's supposed to go with our life, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody taught us that, right? Parenting no. we learn and our emotions we learn only by trial and error, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it seems yeah. like it. That's for sure. Well, yeah. it's really been wonderful to have you on the show. I really appreciate it, Rashri, and I really appreciate all the work you've done to teach people and make the world a better place. Do you have a final thought to share before we say goodbye? Yeah, I guess my final thought would be just remember, you know, you get to do this your way once. Never know what happens after. So I always say to people, just risk. That will reboot you and the universe will support you. Wow. Thank you so much for being here. All the best. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. Oh, and a reminder of what I said at the top of the show about buying URLs, buying website addresses. Go to hover.com, H-O-V-E-R, and use this code. Well, it's just an address that will take you directly there so you can get $2 off your next purchase. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash hover. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.